Hi, welcome to The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center podcast. And I'm joined today by a murderer's row of um, phenomenal Film Society staff members. And we're going to talk about the year in film, 2017. Uh, or maybe the year in film going is more accurate. So if you could um, introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Jordan Raup, the digital marketing manager here. I'm Rachel Allen, the publicist. I'm Maddie Whittle. I work in programming operations at Lincoln Center. Dan Sullivan, assistant programmer at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. So if you listen to the Film Comment podcast, you know that we on that show talk a lot about um, specific films, new films that came out in the year, and we have uh, many opinions about them. And people think, oh, critics have so many opinions. But actually, there are many people in the film industry, many of whom work here at Film Society, who have a lot of opinions about things too, and they love movies. And a lot of people who work here at Film Society, present company definitely included, also attend other repertory houses throughout the city. We're talking about some real movie lovers, and everyone sitting here is a real movie lover. So it's uh, that would be a great idea to just kind of look back over the year and see what we enjoyed. And we have a few different categories, and we're going to start talking about repertory titles that we saw for the first time somewhere in New York during 2017. Okay, so let's start with Jordan. Jordan, what was something that you saw for the first time in 2017, an older film that you'd never seen before that just kind of blew your yes. mind? So actually, right before I started working here, um, you guys showed had the Jean-Pierre Lyot series. And so I spent the whole day watching the rest of the Antoine Duanel films that I had not seen. So I had seen Foreigner Blows, but I came and saw um, the short um, Antoine and Colette's, Then Stolen Kisses, Bed and Board, and Love on the Run. And they, yeah, they all kind of blew me away. They're very play, much more playful and imaginative than I would have thought. Um, Truffaut has such a great, um, a great ability to just jump around from the disturbing to the hilarious to um, the ultra romantic. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was, it's no better way than to spend the afternoon than with that. So you just sat all day and watched the entire Eternal series. And actually, Dan, you had something to do with that. <laughs> you helped program that. So do you, do you actually experience? all those films in one sitting like Jordan did? No, I saw them across a handful of years. So no, I have not done the Antoine Duanel marathon. But during a Leo retrospective, uh, myself and uh, the co-programmer of the, of the retrospective, Florence Almazzini, did uh, spend uh, a few days just watching films in that retrospective. Um, it included like the Mother and the Whore, and um, some Mustache, Godard, Luc Moulet. Yeah, <laughs> um, very, a very rare uh, Philippe Garel film that I don't, I don't think I could find any like record of it ever having played in the United States. So there was a there was a lot of stuff that could conceivably have kept you inside of the movie theater all day for that series. But I feel like I'm gloating, so I'll stop now. <laughs> and to go to your point that I don't just watch films here, I will say one more. Um, at Metrograph, I saw a late-night screening of um, Tulane Blacktop, which I've been waiting to see on a print. Oh, that's and an it is movie. incredible, just pure existentialism to the nth degree. And I felt like my mind had been transported to another place after. <laughs> yeah, after not to say anything against watching that particular film at home video, but that movie, especially if you know the end of that movie, really needs to be seen on a print. Yeah. It's kind of like the whole idea. And of course, James Taylor yeah. is not really an actor, but it's one of the most amazing performances yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, Rachel. 
Yeah, La Concentración, which is in uh, the JPL series, was truly wild and was something that um, the entire audience was experiencing basically for the first time. It was totally ridiculous. And really, even though I didn't love the film, I had a really great, memorable time watching it here. Yeah, um, I was there for that, too. That was pr- that was pretty insane. Yeah, it I would was. say that was one of the most memorable movie going yeah, of 2017. of the year, definitely. For me, the Campion series that we did was a personal highlight. Um, I got to work on it, but I had always, like, I loved the piano. I'd seen it a few times just on my computer, on my television, but I'd never seen it before on the big screen. And I saw that and Bright Star back to back and basically just had an absolutely, like, devastating, amazing day just watching these two films and watching the piano on 35 was like watching it for the first time. It was gorgeous. Um, and just having Campion there that weekend to talk about all of her films just added this great extra layer to it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I hate repeating myself, but since this is a different podcast than the film Common podcast, I'm going to say it again. The piano was, I said this fairly recently, the piano was one of the most formative films of my life growing up. So, and I saw it on 35. I always say that when I, <laughs> like any movie that I saw growing up was on 35. Um, but I remember going to see the piano because it got like a wide release, you know, which sounds crazy now. But it was it was an early Miramax film um, and it got this wide release. And we went as a whole family, like over Thanksgiving break or something. And it was this sold out crowd in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. And everybody was just like stunned in their seats when it was over. And we went home and we talked about it over like the course of three family dinners. The piano just was this thing that changed how I perceived movies at a certain point in my life because it was just accessible enough for us to watch but um if we weren't movie like but not a safe film yeah but not exactly but not a safe film at all and Bright Star completely devastated me I was not expecting it and I don't know what happened to Abby Cornish but she is heartbreaking in that film just I was dead after watching I'll it. tell you what happened to Abby What Cornish. happened to her? She's in three billboards outside Ebbing, oh, Missouri. Oh, I have, you know, that's one I haven't seen yet. It's a film that might come up later in oh, this conversation. Okay. I am going to uh, shout out another one of the programs that we did here at Film Society uh, that I felt uh, very lucky to get to be a part of, which was our series of films made in 1977, mm-hmm. a 40th anniversary retrospective. Uh, And one that I saw for the first time in the course of programming this screening, and then we were able to screen a 35 millimeter print of, I was looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is extremely difficult to see. Uh, I believe the only non-theatrical release it's had. Uh, It's a movie that's really hard to see. Paramount, I believe, released it on a VHS a long time ago that's hard to get a hold of but they still have a 35 millimeter print in circulation that we were able to program uh, in a pretty straightforward way. And it's just just an overwhelming film. And especially in the 2017 film industry climate, coming at the movie from that perspective, I mean, it's, it's a movie about um, sexual liberation and, and um, very much of its time in terms of uh, depicting a certain kind of working woman um, and uh, deals with sexual violence and, and sort of uh, in, in controversial ways that a lot has been, uh, or a fair amount has been written about. Um, but it was surprisingly uh, 
resonant in 2017. So I would uh, recommend anyone, if you ever get a chance to see a screening of that or to uh, somehow get a copy of a, of a tape, you should check it out. Yeah, I was there for that screening. And um, I th- got the sense that the people who went didn't know what they were in for. I thought that they thought it was going to be some kind of fun disco throwback, right? Oh, single liberated woman goes out to bars. And when that movie ended, people were just quietly shuffling out. Nobody was speaking. Yeah, the ending is breathtaking. I mean, the whole movie is, is I found to be surprising in a number of different ways. And Diane Keaton is brilliant in it. Uh, Richard Gere is great in it. And, Richard and, Gere in a jockstrap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and and the whole thing is it's just really bracing and um, it leaves an impression. I would agree with that completely. <laughs> Dan, what was your uh, first time viewing? Uh, I'm going to go with something old and something slightly less old. Uh, so uh, Black Gravel, uh, probably best known film by the uh, sort of under-appreciated, under-recognized German auteur Helmut Koitner. Uh, We showed it in uh, our series on uh, German cinema uh, uh, after uh, the fall of the Third Reich. Um, uh, That film just seems destined to me uh, for some kind of canonization. It's uh, just like a, a lean, mean, muscular, like nasty political uh film noir that i think um uh one could see in any context and be into it um so and it was just uh restored digitally so i think it'll hopefully be uh re-entering circulation in a in a major way in the years to come and uh i i encountered the work of valeska griesbach this year for the first time uh, because her film Western uh, premiered at Cannes and then was at all the, all you know, like all the festivals and and so on. And uh, getting to see her 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 only two other films, uh, Mindstern and Longing, uh, a few months ago was, was really something, especially, uh, well, we screened Longing in our series on the non-actor, so I guess I'll put special emphasis on that film which is in my mind just a, a masterpiece and she's like she's one of the one of the best in the game yeah it's very exciting that western's kind of bringing her to more people's attention yeah yeah it, well it feel, it's given the the long gaps you know how long it takes her to to make a film you know out of necessity uh if you know anything about her working methods um but uh it seems like each of her films is just going to be like a is like a shooting star kind of situation so it's um yeah it's cool when some when a new film by someone is actually an event and we're opening western in february that's true i actually want to throw in a little plug uh for film comment magazine yeah our january february issue is going to have a feature on valeska griesbach um written by hayden guest so it's sort of um tied into what the release of western but it's uh, an appreciation of her career thus far um so that's very exciting and uh for my choice for the something I saw for the first time, um, and at the risk of us all sounding like you know, <laughs> we really do only see movies here. Um, I often do see movies here, and it's a great place to watch movies. So I am going to unabashedly, unembarrassedly say that um, watching William Friedkin's Sorcerer during the '77 series was 
one of the most transcendent movie going experiences this year. I had stayed away from it for years. I would say, uh, almost intentionally for a while because I love Wages of Fear so much and it's a remake of Wages of Fear and I always thought that the director of The Exorcist could never do justice to The Wages of Fear. <laughs> Exorcist not being one of my favorite films. Um, but I have grown more of an appreciation of Friedkin as the years have gone by and Sorcerer on the big screen was just this overwhelming experience. Um, some of the most amazing actions, absurd action sequences I've ever seen. Um, imagery I'll never forget. When I, when I think of that film, I just think of all these, it's like, it's, it's structured into these amazing compartments, right? It has this insane first 15 minutes that just takes place in these, all over the world in, in which it gets this group together who's going to ultimately be driving this nitroglycerin truck um, across this very hellish landscape in South America. And um, I don't know, the experience of it was just kind of singular. I'll add, uh, I was at the opening night screening of the same film and um, it was a packed theater. It was, um, if not sold out, then close to it. And seeing that movie in particular on the big screen in a full house, if we're talking about movie going specifically and the cinematic experience, that is a movie to see in that setting. Mm -hmm. It's it, it, a lot of ways uh, evoked seeing Mad Max Fury Road uh, mm. on a big screen with a big audience. It was, the, it's the same kind of exhilaration. So if you, uh, if you get a chance. Yeah. And I want to add that I actually went to see it right after looking for Mr. Goodbar because it was not, I didn't see the opening night of the festival. I went to, uh, of the series. I went to see it uh, later on and they were back to back, which was kind of like a brilliant kind of double feature, whether you guys intended it or not, because by the time Good Bar ended, people were just ravaged. And so I was, I needed some sort of pick me up. And though Sorcerer is a very heavy film, it, it also just gave me this much needed jolt of energy. Um, so that was a pretty amazing experience. Um, so the next thing we're going we're gonna to talk about, we're also going to talk about repertory titles we saw this year, but things that we've seen, as Jordan likes to say, for the millionth time, <laughs> which is yeah. probably not maybe the fifth accurate. or sixth. Fifth yeah. or sixth. <laughs> um, so a movie that we just love, but we just had to see again on the big screen because that's also part of movie love, right? Yeah. Jordan, what about yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Um, so mine would probably be a film that had a record-breaking opening here at Film Society of Lincoln Center, which was Stalker, the um, new restoration that Janice Films and Criterion um, put out. And um, yeah, I had seen this on DVD like 10 years ago and then about five years ago um, at NYU. Uh, Walter Murch, um, Jeff Dyer, and Dana Stevens and a few others did this talk where they would screen 20 minutes of the film and then, um, and then talk about it and so on and so forth. And that was pretty much my whole day because it's like that takes like five hours to do with that movie but um and but it was like a crappy vhs tape so seeing it now restored um is incredible that the film is so much about um the environment and just seeing the way that um it comes to life it, it i know it's a cliche but it really did see seem like a new film um a new experience um and yeah so that was incredibly transportive and uh, amazing um, and then I'll do one more, which is um, Antonioni's uh, Red Desert, which we screened um, in, in our series here. And yeah, it just the colors of that film, the way um, you're just kind of trapped in this environment with um, Monica Vitti's character and the way the psychological kind of trauma that's going on um, gets kind of transferred to you as a viewer. Um, it's, I don't think I'd, I had actually ever seen it in a theater. So um, yeah, that was incredible. So those are my two picks. Yeah, Tarkovsky and Antonioni are big screen filmmakers for sure. I think I saw Stalker for the first time here back in like 2002, I believe, when they did the full Tarkovsky retro. 
all on 35 because that's what it was like back then. <laughs> Rachel? Um, I'm going to shout out Film Forum, which always shows my faves. Um, I went to a screening of Crossing Delancey, which is ah, yes. my, my favorite rom-com of all time. And it is grossly underappreciated, I think. It has such a unique New York, distinctly Jewish angle to it. And it's just totally lovely. And you really get to spend time with Amy Irving as this conflicted working woman in New York who can't really figure out like what she wants to do with her life and what kind of type of society she wants to be in. She's kind of pulled between her grandmother. She's pulled between this literary world that she just really wants to be in. Um, and it's heartbreaking and romantic with a pickle salesman as the romantic lead. And he is hot, <laughs> hot. And um, I, yeah, I absolutely love it. I've seen it a hundred million times. Um, but seeing it on the big screen at Film Forum, they had a special event with a reunion between Joan McLean Silver, Amy Irving and Peter Rieger. And they hadn't had a reunion in a really long time. And it was just the warmest Q&A I've been to in the entire year and I'll probably remember it forever. This, that screening made me really sad that my mom doesn't live in New York because me that's too. one of her favorite movies ever. I grew up watching it a million times. She is obsessed with it. If she knew that that, I don't think I, I told her it happened because it would have broken her heart. So she doesn't know. I she would have loved going. I actually, as a publicist, you know, I deal with talent a lot. I don't ever take photos with them or nerd out or, you know, show that I'm excited, but I had to get a picture with Joan McLean Silver and send it to my mom <laughs> unabashedly. McLean, Joan McLean Silver, uh, the subject of a big feature in Film Comment a couple issues ago. A great ago. feature. Um, really great article and somebody who I think has been appreciated more in recent years for some reason. People are just kind of coming back and realizing that she, her stuff was great. She's had a lot of really interesting, Chili Season Winter, which is a terrific movie she directed. Um, yeah, good choice. And I'm jealous that I wasn't there. <laughs> so I'm going to cheat a little bit. Um, this year, uh, Halloween weekend, for the first time, I went to Nighthawk Cinemas, A Night to Dismember, which is an all-night movie marathon that they do every year at Halloween. Uh, it starts at midnight, five films in a row, ends with breakfast. Uh, <laughs> it, it's great. They it's sort of, uh, at least this year, the order of the films, I think was no it was not chronological but it was uh it spanned a lot of periods um uh, mostly horror but some you know more skewing funny some mm. less so but a couple of those movies i had seen before um and seeing them again in this late night viewing setting was new for me so i saw the old dark house mm -hmm. which we also screened in a new restoration in the revivals section of our New York Film Festival, um, and this was the restoration that they screened at Nighthawk also, which is, it's a lot of fun. It's a total goofball of a movie, uh, you know, classic James Whale, uh, old haunted house type of a movie. Uh, just a lot of fun, and another one that's fun to see with a big audience. Yeah, a lot of crazy stunts in that movie. Yeah, yeah, trapdoors and, yeah. and all kinds of illusions. Uh, and then the other one that I had seen before in that night's lineup was The Babadook, which it's a very different experience watching that movie at four in the morning when you've been up all night than it is watching it, you know, nine o'clock at night. Um, and it's a movie about exhaustion and about the delirium that comes with lack of sleep. And so seeing it in this new context was a real treat. And uh, if you're ever up at four in the morning and want something to watch... 
I can recommend The Babadook. <laughs> that actually should be a little subgenre of movies. I, I remember when I first watched The House of the Devil, the Ty West movie, I put it on at three. I had just come back from a party and, said, and I hadn't seen it before. So I was like, oh, just check this out, see what this is. And I started watching it, it just absolutely d- disturbed me to no end. I mean, I like it a lot. I still like it. But because it was 3 a.m., I think it was working some weird power on me. But I do highly recommend that. I love The Babadook, too. Dan, what about you? What did you see for the millionth time? This was at the the uh, the outset of this uh, foul year. Um, uh, Claire Denise Beautrevay, um seeing uh, revisiting it on thirty five millimeter in the series we did with Barry Jenkins um, in January uh, was really something. Um, that yeah, speaking of films that need to be seen on 35 millimeter uh i think botrevise my mind like maybe the most yeah the the film you have to see it's most essential that you see it on 35 um and we screened it with a a short i hadn't seen before that barry selected by the uh the british artist phil collins called the meaning of style which uh was a really inspired pairing um but uh yeah botrevise i feel like is a film that like Maybe not all people, but I at least kind of forget about forget about it and its place in kind of the pantheon. And then I was at that screening; it was gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, you revisit it like every few years, and you're like, "Oh, okay, well, that's like the best film anyone's ever made." (laughs) (laughs) Also, the size of that the size of the screen. I mean, I also watched it again at the Walter Reed Theater. I had seen it in the theater before when it first came out. That was at I can't remember if it was the Quad or Cinema Village. Back in 2000, when I saw it, was it was definitely screens. one of those. So it was a very small screen, and I and I remember thinking it was interesting. I mean, I was young. I've since seen it many times on home video, and think it's amazing. But yeah. seeing it here on the big big screen was a whole different experience. Yeah, I saw. I mean, I saw it on 35, like maybe six, seven years. Whenever the Claire Denis retrospective of IFC was, when White Material came out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just every time you go back to that movie, it's you're just like. This is the rhythm of the night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's my just, life. <laughs> it's oh, just yeah. inspired. I don't, it's one of those things like, oh, how did you do that movie? How did you do that? It just seems some sort of magic happened. Yeah, I mean, when you see it on 35, the tactility, this like simultaneously, like the tactility and the simplicity of everything is foregrounded in a really fascinating way. And you, you realize like someone can create an, like an astonishing, like, incontrovertible masterpiece with like relatively limited means if you have the right performers and the right kind of you know way with the whole the whole apparatus of filmmaking and few people have a better way with that than Claire Denis so yeah um, this has probably been said a million times but the way that bodies are framed in that movie is probably uh it's it's well it's singular I mean there's nothing to compare it to and I, I would think that anyone who's taking a film course should watch that I saw it in my first film class you did okay so I was say don't watch Citizen Kane anymore watch (laughs) Boat Travai no we did and that was kind of like holy shit I have to take every class ever now and not be an econ major and be a film major (laughs) (laughs) so you've seen it a million times too is what you're saying I've seen it a million times on like small screens projected in like classrooms that sort of thing but seeing it at the Walter Reed was amazing um, and then I guess my choice for something I've seen many times but had a particularly good experience this year with, oh wait, as a preface, 
I was going to talk about Empire of the Sun because I actually went to see it twice on 35 in two different theaters in 2017 because <laughs> it played at the Metrograph and it also played at Museum of the Moving Image. Um, the first time with Molly Haskell introducing it and that was great because it was sold out and there were actually a lot of people there who had never seen it before and that's the scale of that film is so impressive. I think people you know, used to maybe take for granted um, that movies like that were even getting made. Um, and what Spielberg accomplished was incredible. I find it such an overwhelming emotional experience that I kind of have to put myself through it. So I guess I've talked about that, even though I said I wasn't going to talk about that. Um, but the other movie I was going to say was uh, Morris, which is the Merchant Ivory film. Um, and it was a particularly special screening because I got to do uh, the Q&A with James Ivory after at the Quad. This was sort of the beginning of its... Um, revival run and a new restoration and if any movie deserves a revival run in 2017 it was morris which is uh, it's 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 a uh, merchant ivory's em forrester adaptation of the of the great unpublished in his lifetime em forrester novel which was a gay novel written in um i believe the teens all right like 1915 or something like that um, and it just does complete justice to the work. It, it's just this kind of emotionally devastating, soaring, visually perfect film. And um, I think that there was the kind of the company line among cinephiles on Merchant Ivory for many years was that they made these very dainty wallpaper films. And I think that that estimation is hopefully going away. I think if you watch movies like Howard's End, or uh, Room of the View, or especially Morris, you know that there was a lot going on there, and they were saying a lot about a particularly repressed Victorian society. Um, oh, sorry, Edwardian society. Let's edit that back in. Um, so we're going to go around now, and we're going to talk about something um, a, a little more immediate, which is new films from 2017. And I've asked everybody to pick first their favorite movie of 2017. Right. Yeah, start with Jordan. Um, so vying for number one, uh, it's a tie between Phantom Thread, A Ghost Story, and Song to Song. And so at <laughs> so the, ex cheated, at the expense saying. of not talking about, of, of missing out one, I'm just going to jump to my number four pick and talk about that instead. Okay. Um, which is um, Dawson City, Frozen Time, which is Bill Morrison's um, documentary that premiered at um, New York Film Festival last, like, yeah, over a year ago now. Um, but I caught up with it at one of the last screenings they had during its theatrical run at IFC Center. And... Um, and they kept pushing because I was asking for a screener and they were like, no, you need to see this on the big screen. And I'm so glad I did um, because it is just an overwhelming, formally fascinating um, uh, film. And I guess uh, one brief, you know, log line for it is just um, in the Yukon um, when, you know, er, in the early silent era, when these films were being made, um, Hollywood would pay to have these uh, films sh shipped all around the country and then they would end up in the Yukon and they didn't want to pay to bring them back. So the, these films just got buried there. Um, and then in the 70s, someone came and dug them up. And um, and so this film is kind of both the exploration of um, film preservation and, and the necessity of it, but also just this... Um, the, he uses all archival footage from these films and also from um, other materials around the area um, to tell this just incredible st um, story about um, a town and also the artistic um, um, outlets it had of all these men that were just working and trying to um, dig for gold. And um, Alex Summers' score is the best I've heard all year. So um, it's on Blu-ray now, just watching in a very dark room, and <laughs> it's amazing. So. 
I have a tie. Everybody has ties. Sorry, it's hard. Um, but I guess all my picks so far have been female directors, and I'm going to continue that. Um, my favorites of this year were Faces, Places, and Lady Bird. Um, I think they're both really delightful, but surprisingly powerful works of art about inquisitive minds. And I think you can still be an inquisitive mind at 80 and same as 17. Um, I thought Faces, Places just such an, a beautiful look at the ephemerality of art and life and collaboration. Um, and Lady Bird to me was so specific and personal that it was like universal. Like every person that I've taken to see it, cause I've seen it three times now, four times now, I made everyone I know see it, um, got something different out of it, but they all felt such a strong connection to that like angsty, confused teenage, years um and it's they're both just really lovely and I highly recommend both of them I went through the whole emotional turmoil of uh composing and ranking my year-end favorites list um and at the top of the list since I saw it this fall has remained Columbus which uh was a little indie that came out earlier this year um I missed it when it was in theaters I uh didn't see it till several months later uh, it's a uh, first time director it's his it's his first feature his name is Kogunada um, and it takes place in a town Columbus Indiana that's just sort of a small midwestern town uh, that is remarkable for its modernist architecture it's sort of a, a center um, of of these really incredible architectural landmarks and the movie stars John Cho and uh, in a smaller role Parker Posey and uh, this young woman named Haley Lou Richardson who gives just the most incredible performance that I've seen this year. Um, she's a young uh, woman who has finished high school and uh, is sort of taking care of her mother uh, and hasn't quite launched herself into the world yet. She doesn't uh, sort of know where she goes from here and but she loves the architecture of her hometown and um, sort of forges a connection with the son of a renowned architecture scholar played by John Cho and um, I won't say any more than that but it's just beautiful and should you should really check it out if you if it uh, passed you by this year. Uh, it's, it's, I found it extremely moving. If you've ever been moved by a building or if you've ever had to take care of a parent and, and, um, sort of had to struggle with conflicts emerging from that, or if you've just not known what's next for you in life at a time when it feels like you're supposed to know, um, and, and felt out of touch with your peers in your age group, see this movie and you'll get something out of it. Seems like it's been getting a lot at, at the end of the year. A lot of more people have been coming out of the woodwork as Columbus fans. Dan. Twin Peaks, the return was the, the, the great artwork of the year, I think, but I don't know if, I don't know. I don't know what the parameters for our discussion here are. I don't know if here I'm going to incite a international incident here, but, um, but, as for 
as far as movies that are like you know uh unquestionably movies uh go uh zama is the was the towering film of the year for me uh lucrecia martel is just you know i mean who's better i can't think of anyone who's better than her uh nowadays it's really yeah really like surprising astonishing like completely absorbing film and all the more impressive for uh how long it how how long and complicated its production history was and having now read the novel recently i'm completely floored by the fact that anyone was able to adapt that into a film so zama um and i i would probably pick zama if i were counting it amongst 2017 films because it's that weird thing that happens with movies seen at festivals they don't get official releases to the following year sometimes so that's coming out in 2018 it will certainly be my number one of 2018 unless something really really amazing comes along i hope it does i hope that there are 10 movies as good as zama but you know i'm dubious um so my my favorite movie of the year is um a quiet passion terrence davies film which i guess first technically showed in 2016 because that's how the calendar works once again um that's uh, of course davies um exquisite and sort of terrifying movie about emily dickinson um, well, starts out hilarious, ends terrifying. And if you've seen Terrence Davies movies, you, I would say you kind of know what to expect visually, but he's always doing things that you never could possibly anticipate. And again, a film that seems to be getting more appreciation in the recent weeks as people are kind of filling out their list for the year. It was an incredible experience to see on the big screen. I think I saw it four, four times on the big screen. But it was pretty incredible, even on the small screen, too. So if you have to watch it that way, I highly recommend it so you don't have to wait. So now we're going to shift gears um, to <laughs> something that begins might, might incite a little more debate. I mean, I think we all agree that everything we just talked about was a great movie. As long um, as we don't pick anyone else's. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but now we're going to talk about our least favorite movies of 2017. And we'll start with Jordan. Yes. So disregarding just like the laziest comedies I saw, which were Baywatch and Going in Style, the uh, <laughs> Zach Braff remake, um, I'm going to pick a movie that... Uh, <laughs> Zach Braff made that? Yes, he oh, directed I mean, that. Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, <laughs> yeah, worse gonna, than I thought. I'll pick a movie that is kind of getting some buzz around this time that I kind of hated, which was The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, I'm with you there. Yeah. I actually adored Dogtooth. I found Alps to be okay and then um, the lobster was fun and had a lot of kind of interesting ideas and then this film just kind of felt like he was spinning his wheels from the first frame and um, just so pretentious and kind of not even funny in the way that I was that I found the lobster to be funny like there's only maybe two hearty laughs um, involving um, children in danger and um, <laughs> and I was just hoping for a lot more uh, I just felt like one idea that just we're talking about Yorgos Lanthimos we yes. should say. Oh, yeah, Yorgos Lanthimos. So, yeah. So, hopefully, I mean, his next film comes out um, next year, which has more promise. Um, the Favorite with Emma Stone, a period piece. So, we'll see. I, I would say I enjoy it for about 10 minutes. I liked all the talk about watches when they yeah. were having these very, like, deadpan well, Bill Camp is amazing. Conversations and about yeah, they were talking about like wristwatches. Yeah. About you know, oh, I, I'm gonna, I love that wristwatch. I hope to find a wristwatch just like that. That's a terrific <laughs> wristwatch, and just goes on and on and on. I thought this is really funny. This is great. And then when it becomes this kind of like Hanukkah horror yeah. film, I just it's just so insipid. Yeah. So there it is. Unless anyone better. has, unless anyone <laughs> feels differently about the killing of a sacred deer. No, no, got a lot of head shaking here. Rachel. 
All right. So I have one that I think was just legitimately awful and one that I just didn't like that a lot of people seem to like. So maybe it'll start some debate uh, here today. Um, so legitimately terrible was Valerian, which I saw. I just decided to watch it at home because I wanted to see the Rihanna scene and I couldn't even get that far. I got through like 20, 25 minutes and had to shut it off. It made no sense. Visually, it was, yeah, it was like bright and, you know, a whole different world, but it was just, everything was moving so fast. You could barely follow along and the actors were so wooden. They could barely talk to each other. It was so uncomfortable and just all over the place. Yeah, it was, it was bad and I never got to see Rihanna. So I just Googled some gifts of it and it was fine. Um, uh, a film that I uh, did not really enjoy that I know a lot of people did this year was Nocturama. Um, I get that there was a lot of craft to it, but it just left me feeling cold. And I'm a person that I I really want to feel something from a movie. And it just, I didn't care about the the characters. I didn't leave the theater feeling anything. And Yeah, I just, I didn't, I could appreciate like how well it was edited and the pacing and and all of that and the split in the middle, but I just, it just, I didn't connect to it and I just didn't get what all the hubbub and fuss was about. So explain guys, I want to hear. What was all the hubbub and fuss about? I thought, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll listen to that podcast and then I'll come back with some thoughts. It's, it grew in my estimation. Um, the more I thought about it and, and saw it again, actually. But um, it certainly, it actually really emotionally affected me, which is a, really? maybe strange to say for a movie that uh, but that has like deadpan acting and kind of, you know, quote unquote oh, wooden nothing. characters. But the last act, when they're just sort of, oof, I don't want to say, I don't want to spoil, but you know what happens in the last act just really, really bothered me. I remember just kind of walking out very upset. See, I was just like, all right, <laughs> heartless. <laughs> maybe, Maddie. I'm gonna follow in Rachel's footsteps and mentioned two movies. The first, more along the lines of your feelings about Nocturama, uh, was sort of a movie that I had high expectations for on the basis of the buzz it was getting, and it just didn't do anything for me, uh, which was Personal Shopper, mm. uh, the Olivier Assess, which uh, you know we screened at New York Film Festival. It's on a lot of critics' best of lists, and somehow I saw it, and it left me cold. And I like Kristen Stewart. I like... You know, all, all the ingredients uh, conceivably should have added up to a movie that, that I really liked, but it something about it just fell flat, flat with me. So, uh, And the other movie that I will mention is that I had forgotten was released this year until I saw it on a master list of all the 27 movie releases. It's called Vengeance, A Love Story. It's a Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates, or maybe maybe it's a short story. I can't remember. Do we know this movie? It's, no. uh, it's like straight to VOD. Yeah, yeah. I I saw some stream of it uh, at somewhere. I I uh, don't even know how that came to pass. But it's if you just want a movie that is not good but that takes itself very seriously, <laughs> check it out. I think we all want that. I don't know that. I don't know that I had a least favorite. I don't. I'm an enthusiast, man. I don't, I don't, I haven't been holding on to my memories of like new things I saw that I didn't like. I will say that I haven't seen a lot of the like the super commercial dogs that I think I could mention in this context. So, um, you know, I mean, most of the things that I 
like actively disliked were like more modest, like smaller films that I don't want to. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to hate on them on this uh, podcast because it's that's not good for anyone. So um, <laughs> except for our listeners, I'm trying to think of a like if I can instead cite some kind of some trend that I dislike mm-hmm. instead of like instead of an individual film. I will prompt you by saying that I know that you and I had vastly different responses to Justice League, of which I was <laughs> I was a pretty big so fan. Did see yeah. Justice League? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't have. You didn't love it. Star Wars. I did, yeah, but I didn't like this. It's not like <laughs> it's not like my least favorite thing. I would say one thing that I don't think I'm alone in this, but I, I think a lot of people have detected a certain like tendency towards infomercial in a lot of uh, uh, commercial or like semi-commercial documentary filmmaking these days, and I'm uh, I'm very wary, very wary of this tendency. I think if you um, like, I just saw I just saw this uh, the documentary about grace jones that's coming out next year and that film for me is the opposite of that it's actually it's a complicated um nuanced uh the sophie fines directed it and it's uh it's just yeah it's just like a sophisticated portrait of its subject uh it's not a commercial for its subject and uh I've, I, I feel like this year, particularly on various uh, streaming services, I, I got excited about um, the existence of a lot of, of documentaries about things or people I was interested in, and then I threw them on, and I, I got the suspicion that, uh, that all the parties involved were trying to sell me something, and uh, yeah, that, uh, that's not good, I don't think. Yeah, I think everyone's always trying to sell you something. Uh, just good art hides it. <laughs> And then my least favorite movie, uh, and not that this is necessarily the worst movie, but yeah, something that I genuinely don't like and that other people seem to like, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, starring Abby Cornish um, and a few other people. <laughs> but um, What's her performance? She's ridiculous, actually. It's not her fault, though. She's, it's, it's one of the strangest miscasting errors I can recall. I mean... It's, there's a lot of oddness to that plot. It's such a stupid movie with such a stupid plot that just hits on a few zeitgeisty things, so people seem to think it deserves accolades or awards. And but, it's got Frances McDormand, so... It, right, which gives it cred. Right. And she's, it should be good. And she's she's fun to watch. She has her mannerisms and her tics, and that's always fun. And McDonough has done some good stuff. He... Cat on the stage, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, so well, Abby Cornish just quickly plays the much much younger and Australian wife of Woody Harrelson, living in is in the Ozarks. But yeah, so she's. She, I mean, Woody Harrelson, I guess, and it must be in his like late fifties now. And Abby Cornish is his much younger Australian wife. And it's strange because there are all these comments are made about other characters having like younger, prettier girlfriends. Which is another theme of 2017 cinema. Just 2017? Well, <laughs> I think the old men, young women trope has been especially uh, frequent this year. Yes. But anyway, the movie is just um, absurd. Anyone who's seen it as always says like, what, how, do, how could that possibly happen? And there are no consequences. All these things happen that just don't seem like they would happen in the real world. Yeah, he like infamously just shot his first draft, which he likes to do. And it just, it very much feels like that. Like, and there there's, go. I appreciate some of the rough edges of it, but it was very much a one-time only experience. And ever since then, it's faded from my mind. <laughs> it's also, Well, that movie is one of several this year that I've 
been interested in sort of charting the critical response to that and Mother. And now we're seeing The Last Jedi, the <laughs> super polarized responses. And I, I, uh, I'm always interested every year in sort of what movies are the most divisive in terms of generating both adamant hate and <laughs> adoration. Right. Anything that gets an extreme reaction, I guess, is somewhat good for film culture, right? Maybe. Maybe. But there's a debate right there. <laughs> yeah, depending on the film. Mother's one, I actually, I've never had that flip where I remember I talked to you right after I saw it and I was seething kind of with anger, even though I liked parts of it. And then, oh, I loved Mother. No, and now I'm kind of... <laughs> I've gone a little bit of a 180 on it, so yeah. No, I'm 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 in the mother camp. Yeah. I, I'm I'll go out for mother. I still love the fountain the most, but <laughs> now that no, I'm alone. Now that is ridiculous. I know. On that note, <laughs> Jordan incriminating himself as yes. a fountain fan. Thank you very much, everyone, for this discussion. It was really fun, and I hope we can continue this discussion in the future. So, um, thanks to anyone who came to Film Society in 2017 and thanks to anybody who came to really any rep house because it's really important to to see as many films and repertory theaters as you can and keep this amazing art form alive. So thanks for listening and have a great 2018. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.